Chapter Six, Part Three, of Chopin, The Man and His Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. Chopin, The Man and His Music, by James Huneker. Chapter Six, Part Three, The Studies. Titanic Experiments Von Bulow calls the seventh study, the one in C-sharp minor, a nocturne, a duo for cello and flute. He ingeniously smooths out the unequal rhythmic differences of the two hands, and justly says the piece does not work out any special technical matter. This study is the most lauded of all. Yet I cannot help agreeing with Nikes, who writes of it, he oddly enough places it in the key of E. Quote, a duet between a he and a she, of whom the former shows himself more talkative and emphatic than the latter, is indeed very sweet, but perhaps also somewhat tiresomely monotonous, as such tete-a-tetes naturally are to third parties. For Chopin's contemporaries, this was one of his greatest efforts. Heller wrote, it engenders the sweetest sadness, the most enviable torments, and if in playing it one feels oneself insensibly drawn toward mournful and melancholy ideas, it is a disposition of the soul which I prefer to all others. Alas, how I love these somber and mysterious dreams, and Chopin is the God who created them. In this etude, Kleczynski thinks there are traces of weariness of life, and quotes Orlowski, Chopin's friend. Quote, he is only afflicted with homesickness. Unquote. Willoughby calls this study the most beautiful of them all. For me, it is both morbid and elegiac. There is nostalgia in it, the nostalgia of a sick, lacerated soul. It contains in solution all the most objectionable and most endearing qualities of the master. Perhaps we have heard its sweet, highly perfumed measures too often. Its interpretation is a matter of taste. Kulak has written the most ambitious program for it. Here is a quotation from Albert R. Parsons' translation in Schreimer's edition of Kulak. Throughout the entire piece... An elegiac mood prevails. The composer paints with psychologic truthfulness a fragment out of the life of a deeply clouded soul. He lets a broken heart, filled with grief, proclaim its sorrow in a language of pain which is incapable of being misunderstood. The heart has lost not something, but everything. The tones, however, do not always bear the impress of a quiet, melancholy resignation. More passionate impulses awaken, and the still plaint becomes a complaint against cruel fate. It seeks the conflict and tries through force of will to burst the fetters of pain, or at least to alleviate it through absorption in a happy past. But in vain. The heart has not lost something, it has lost everything. The musical poem divides into three, 
or if one views the little episode in b major as a special part into four parts strophes of which the last is an elaborated repetition of the first with a brief closing part appended the whole piece is a song or better still an aria in which two principal voices are to be brought out the upper one is in imitation of a human voice while the lower one must bear the character throughout of an obligato violoncello it is well known that chopin was very fond of the violoncello and that in his piano compositions he imitated the style of passages peculiar to that instrument the two voices correspond closely supplementing and imitating each other reciprocally between the two a third element exists an accompaniment of eighths in uniform succession without any significance beyond that of filling out the harmony this third element is to be kept wholly subordinate the little one-voiced introduction in recitative style which precedes the aria reminds one vividly of the beginning of the ballad in g minor opus twenty three the d flat study number eight is called by von bulow the most useful exercise in the whole range of etude literature it might truly be called le indispensable di pianista if the term through misuse had not fallen into disrepute as a remedy for stiff fingers and preparatory to performing in public playing it six times through is recommended even to the most expert pianist Unquote. only six times the separate study of the left hand is recommended. Kulak finds this study, quote, surprisingly euphonious, but devoid of depth of content, unquote. It is an admirable study for the cultivation of double sixths. It contains a remarkable passage of consecutive fifths that set theorists by the ears. Riemann manages to get some new editorial comment upon it. The nimble study, number nine, which bears the title of The Butterfly, is in G-flat. Von Bulow transposes it enharmonically to F-sharp, avoiding numerous double flats. The change is not laudable. He holds anything but an elevated opinion of the piece, classing it with a composition of the Charles Mayer order. This is unjust. The study, if not deep, is graceful and certainly very effective. It has lately become the stamping ground for the display of piano athletics. Nearly all modern virtuosi pull to pieces the wings of this gay little butterfly. They smash it, they bang it, and, adding insult to cruelty, they finish it with three chords, mounting an octave each time, thus giving a conventional character to the close, the very thing the composer avoids. The Telefson's edition and Kleenworth's give these differences. Macaulay, von Bulow, and Kulak place the legato bow over the first three notes of the group. Riemann, of course, is different. The metronomic markings are about the same in all editions. Asiatic wildness, according to von Bulow, pervades the B minor study, opus 25, number 10, although Willoughby claims it to be only a study in octaves, quote, for the left hand. Von Bula furthermore compares it, because of its monophonic character, to the chorus of Derevishis in Beethoven's Ruins of Athens. 
Nyack says it is, quote, a real pandemonium. For a while, holier sounds intervene, but finally hell prevails, unquote. The study is for Kulak, quote, somewhat far-fetched and forced in invention, and leaves one cold, although it plunges on wildly to the end, unquote. Von Bulow has made the most complete edition. Klindworth strengthens the first and the seventh eighth notes of the fifth bar before the last by filling in the harmonics of the left hand. This etude is an important one technically. Because many pianists make little of it does not abate its musical significance, and I am almost inclined to group it with the last two studies of this opus. The opening is portentous and soon becomes a driving whirlwind of tone. Chopin has never penned a lovelier melody than the one in B, the middle section of this etude. It is only to be compared to the one in the same key in the B minor scherzo, while the return to the first subject is managed as consummately as in the E flat minor scherzo from opus 35. I confess to being stirred by this B minor study with its tempo at a forced draft and with its precipitous close. There is a lushness about the octave melody. The tune may be a little overripe, but it is sweet, sensuous music, and about it hovers the hush of a rich evening in early autumn. And now, The Winter Wind, The Study in A Minor, Opus 25, Number 11. Here even von Bulow becomes enthusiastic. Quote, it must be mentioned as a particular merit of this, the longest and, in every respect, the grandest of Chopin's studies, that, while producing the greatest fullness of sound imaginable, it keeps itself so entirely and utterly unorchestral, and represents piano music in the most accurate sense of the word. To Chopin is due the honor and credit of having set fast the boundary between piano and orchestral music, which through other composers of the Romantic school, especially Robert Schumann, has been defaced and blotted out to the prejudice and damage of both species. Unquote. Kulak is equally as warm in his praise of it. Quote, One of the grandest and most ingenious of Chopin's etudes and a companion piece to opus 10 number 12 which perhaps it even surpasses it is a bravura study of the highest order and it is captivating through the boldness and originality of its passages whose rising and falling waves full of agitation overflow the entire keyboard captivating through its harmonic and modulatory shadings and captivating finally through a wonderfully invented little theme which is drawn like a red thread through all the flashing and glittering waves of tone, and which, as it were, prevents them from scattering to all quarters of the heavens. This little theme, strictly speaking only a phrase of two measures, is, in a certain sense, the motto which serves as a superscription for the etude, appearing first one-voiced and immediately after four-voiced. The slow time, lento, shows the great importance which is to be attached to it. 
they who have followed thus far and agree with what has been said cannot be in doubt concerning the proper artistic delivery to execute the passages quite in the rapid time prescribed one must possess a finished technique great facility lightness of touch equality strength and endurance in the forte passages together with the clearest distinctness in the piano and pianissimo all of this must have been already achieved for the interpreter must devote his whole attention to the poetic contents of the composition especially to the delivery of the march-like rhythms which possess a life of their own appearing now calm and circumspect and anon bold and challenging the march-like element naturally requires strict playing time Unquote. this study is magnificent and moreover it is music in bar fifteen von bulow makes be natural the second note of the last group although all other editions except Kleinworth, uses a b flat von bulow has common sense on his side the b flat is a misprint the same authority recommends slow staccato practice with the lid of the piano closed then the hurly-burly of tone will not intoxicate the player and submerge his critical faculty each editor has his notion of the phrasing of the initial sixteenths thus macaulay's which is normal as regards grouping riemann follows von bulow but places his accents differently the canvas is chopin's largest for the idea and its treatment are on a vastly grander scale than any contained in the two concertos the latter are after all miniatures precious ones if you will joined and built with cunning artifice in neither work is there the restless overflow of this etude which has been compared to the screaming of the winter blasts ah how chopin puts to flight those modern men who scheme out a big decorative pattern and then have nothing wherewith to fill it he never relaxes his theme and its fluctuating surprises are many the end is notable for the fact that scales appear chopin very seldom uses scale figures in his studies from hummel to thalberg and hertz the keyboard had glittered with spangled scales chopin must have been sick of them as sick of them as of the left-hand melody with arpeggiated accompaniment at the right a la thalberg scales had been used too much hence chopin's sparing employment of them in the first c-sharp minor study opus ten there is a run for the left hand in the coda in the seventh study same key opus twenty five there are more the second study of opus ten in a minor is a chromatic scale study but there are no other specimens of the form until the mighty run at the conclusion of this a minor study it takes prodigious power and endurance to play this work prodigious power passion and no little poetry it is open-air music storm music and at times moves in processional splendor small-souled men no matter how agile their fingers should avoid it the prime technical difficulty is the management of the thumb kulak has made a variant at the end for concert performance it is effective the average metronomic marking is sixty-nine to the half 
Kulak thinks the twelfth and last study of Opus 25 in C minor, quote, a grand, magnificent composition for practice in broken chord passages for both hands, which requires no comment, unquote. I differ from this worthy teacher. Rather is Nike's more to my taste. Quote, Number 12, C minor, in which the emotions rise not less high than the waves of arpeggios which symbolize them. Unquote. Von Bulaf is didactic. Quote, the requisite strength for this grandiose bravura study can only be attained by the utmost clearness, and thus only by a gradually increasing speed. It is therefore most desirable to practice it piano also by a way of variety, for otherwise the strength of tone might easily degenerate into hardness, and in the poetic striving after a realistic portrayal of a storm on the piano the instrument, as well as the piece, would come to grief. The pedal is needful to give the requisite effect, and must change with every new harmony, but it should only be used in the latter stages of study, when the difficulties are nearly mastered. Unquote. We have our preferences. Mine, in Opus 25, is the C minor study, which, like the prelude in D minor, is full of the sound of great guns. Willoughby thinks otherwise. On page 81, in his Life of Chopin, he has the courage to write, quote, Had Professor Nyack applied the term monotonous to number 12, we should have been more ready to endorse his opinion, as, although great power is manifested, the very sameness of the form of the arpeggio figure causes a certain amount of monotony to be felt. Unquote. The C minor study is, in a degree, a return to the first study in C. While the idea in the former is infinitely nobler, more dramatic and tangible, there is in the latter naked, primeval simplicity, the elemental puissance. Monotonous? A thousand times no. Monotonous as is the thunder and spray of the sea when it tumbles and roars on some sullen, savage Thor. Beethoven, in its ruggedness, the Chopin of this C minor study is as far removed from the musical dandyisms of the Parisian drawing-rooms as is Beethoven himself. It is orchestral in intention and a true epic of the piano. Riemann places half-notes at the beginning of each measure, as a reminder of the necessary clinging of the thumbs. I like von Vulof's version the best of all. His directions are most minute. He gives the list method of working up the climax in octave triplets. How Liszt must have thundered through this tumultuous work! Before it, all criticism should be silenced that fails to allow Chopin a place among the greatest creative musicians. We are here in the presence of Chopin the musician, not Chopin the composer for piano. In 1840, Troy Nouvelle Etude by Frédéric Chopin appeared in the Méthode de Méthode pour le Piano by F. J. Fitti and I. Mochel. It was odd company for the Polish composer. Internal evidence seems to show, writes Nyacks, that these weakest of the master's studies, which, however, are by no means uninteresting and certainly very characteristic, 
may be regarded more than opus twenty five as the outcome of a gleaning the last decade has added much to the artistic stature of these three supplementary studies they have something of the concision of the preludes the first is a masterpiece in f minor the theme in triplet quarters broad sonorous and passionate is unequally pitted against four eight notes in the bass the technical difficulty to be overcome is purely rhythmic and kulak takes pains to show how it may be overcome it is the musical the emotional content of the study that fascinates the worthy editor calls it a companion piece to the F minor study in Opus 25. The comparison is not an apt one. Far deeper is this new study, and although the doors never swing quite open, we divine the tragic issues concealed. Beautiful in a different way is the A-flat study which follows. Again, the problem is a rhythmical one and again the composer demonstrates his exhaustless invention and his power of evoking a single mood viewing all its lovely contours and letting it melt away like dream magic full of gentle sprightliness and lingering sweetness is this study chopin has the hypnotic quality more than any composer of the century richard wagner accepted after you have enjoyed playing this study, read Kulak and his Triplicity in Biplicity. It may do you good, and it will not harm the music. In all the editions save one that I have seen, the third study in D-flat begins on A-flat, like the famous Valse in D-flat. The exception is Kleendworth, who starts with B-flat, the note above. The study is full of sunny, good humor, spiritualized humor, and leaves the most cheering impression after its performance. Its technical object is a simultaneous legato and staccato. The result is an idealized valsa in allegretto tempo, the very incarnation of joy, tempered by aristocratic reserve. Chopin never romps, but he jests wittily, and always in supremely good taste. This study fitly closes his extraordinary labors in this form, and it is as if he had signed it F. Chopin at Ego in Arcady. Among the various editions, let me recommend Kleendworth for daily usage, while frequent reference to von Bulow, Riemann, and Kulak cannot fail to prove valuable, curious, and interesting. Of the making of Chopin editions, there is seemingly no end. In 1894, I saw in manuscript some remarkable versions of the Chopin studies by Leopold Godowski. The study in G-sharp minor was the first one published and played in public by this young pianist. Unlike the Brahms derangements, they are musical but immensely difficult. Topsy-turvied as are the figures, a Chopin, even if lopsided, hovers about, sometimes with eyebrows lifted, sometimes with angry, knitted forehead, and not seldom amused to the point of smiling. You see his narrow shoulders, shrugged in the Polish fashion as he examines the study in double-thirds transposed to the left hand. Curiously enough, this transcription, difficult as it is, 
does not tax the fingers as much as a bedevilment of the A minor, opus 25, number 4, which is extremely difficult, demanding color discrimination and individuality of finger. More breath-catching, and a piece at which one must cry out, hats off, gentlemen, a tornado, is the caprice called badinage. But if it is meant to badinage, it is no sport for the pianist of everyday technical attainments. This is formed of two studies. In the right hand is the G-flat study, opus 25, number 9, and in the left the black key study, opus 10, number 5. The two go laughing through the world like old friends. Brother and sister they are tonally, trailing behind them a cloud of iridescent glory. Godowski has cleverly combined the two, following their melodic curves as nearly as possible. In some places he has thickened the harmonies and shifted the black key figures to the right hand. It is the work of a remarkable pianist. This is the way it looks on paper at the beginning. The same study, G-flat, opus 10, number 5, is also treated separately, the melody being transferred to the treble. The butterfly octaves, in another study, are made to hop nimbly along in the left hand, and the C major study, opus 10, number 7, Chopin's Toccata, is arranged for the left hand, and seems very practical and valuable. Here the adapter has displayed great taste and skill, especially on the third page. The pretty musical idea is not destroyed, but viewed from other points of vantage. Opus 10, number 2, is treated like a left-hand study, as it should be. Chopin did not always give enough work to the left hand, and the first study of this opus in C is planned on brilliant lines for both hands. Ingenious is the manipulation of the seldom-played opus 25, number 5, in E minor. As a study in rhythms and double notes, it is very welcome. The F minor study, opus 25, number 2, as considered by the ambidextrous Godowski, is put in the bass, where it whirls along to the melodic encouragement of a theme of the paraphraser's own in the right. This study has suffered the most of all, for Brahms, in his heavy, teutonic way, set it grinding double sixths, while Isidore Philippe, in his studies for the left hand, has harnessed it to sullen octaves. This Frenchman, by the way, also arranged for left hand alone the G-sharp minor, the D-flat double sixths, the A minor, winter wind, studies, the B-flat minor prelude, and, terrible to relate, the last movement of the Chopin B-flat minor sonata. Are the Godowski transcriptions available? Certainly. In ten years, so rapid is the technical standard advancing, they will be used in the curriculum of students. Whether he has treated Chopin with reverence, I leave my betters to determine. What has reverence to do with the case anyhow? Plato is parsed in the schoolroom, and Beethoven taught in conservatories. Therefore, why worry over the question of Godowski's attitude? Besides, he is writing for the next generation, presumably a generation of Rosenthal's. And now, having passed over the salt and stubbly domain of pedagogics, what is the dominant impression gleaned from the twenty-seven Chopin studies? Is it not one of admiration, tinged with wonder, 
at the prodigal display of thematic and technical invention? Their variety is great. The aesthetic side is nowhere neglected for the purely mechanical, and in the most poetic of them stuff may be found for delicate fingers. Astounding, canorous, enchanting, alembicated, and dramatic, the Chopin studies are exemplary essays in emotion and manner. In them is mirrored all of Chopin, the planetary as well as the secular Chopin. When most of his piano music has gone the way of all things fashioned by mortal hands, these studies will endure, will stand for the 19th century as Beethoven crystallized the 18th, Bach the 17th centuries in piano music. Chopin is a classic. End of chapter 6, part 3. End of chapter 6. Read by Robert Hoffman.